in that passage that we've just read through. There are some timeless teachings that come from Paul. Some people would even consider some of the verses in that chapter to be some of the most important verses in the entire Bible. Verses, especially like in uh, verses 8 and 9, are considered uh, hands down among sort of the top words spoken by Paul. And we're going to cover those little detail in a few minutes here. But, but they're these words that have so much meaning and so much familiarity to, to all generations. To people from, from this generation and going back after generation after generation after generation. These are words that Paul wrote that have just rung so true and been so meaningful and important to people. And with it being Mother's Day, and as I was working through this and thinking about how important and timeless so many of these words are, it kind of got me thinking about how timeless and important so many of mom's words have been for a lot of us. And so as I was thinking about that, I thought, you know, my mom said a lot of things that, that really stuck with me, and then Nadine has said some of these same things. So perhaps, perhaps there are timeless words of mom. And so I, I thought I'd test it out on everybody here this morning as we begin so here's what I like to do. I'm going to start a phrase, a, a typical mom phrase, if you will, and I want to see if you can all finish it, because if you can all finish it, then that's probably a timeless, meaningful phrase of mom. Agreed? Agreed. So let's see. Let's see how this goes. So for example, the first one would be, um, if you keep making that face, it's going to stay that way. Okay, so we're on the right track here so far. That's just one. Let's see if we can do this. Quiet down. I can barely... Hear myself think, yeah, that's right. How about this one? I brought you into this world, and I can take you out of this world, right? <laughs> There's a good one. Or uh, another classic one. Shut the door. You weren't born in a barn. Yeah, that's a common one. Or uh, I like this one. Stop crying, or I'll give you something to cry about. <laughs> yeah. Or uh, I, I know I've heard, I've heard Nadine say something similar to this one. Though. Oh, so Jenny's mom lets you do that. Fine then. Go live with Jenny. <laughs> right. And then finally, I know I've heard my mom and Nadine say this one for sure. I will always love you. I will always love you. And yes, moms, we love all of you too. And we thank you for your care, for your compassion, for your words of wisdom that you have definitely passed down to us over the years. And you are absolutely... Great examples, people who exemplify God's grace and his love. And to my mom, who listens each week online, happy Mother's Day to you as well. So, well, in chapter 2 of the book of Ephesians, Paul continues to lay this theological foundation that was started for the last two weeks in chapter 1. And in here, we, if you're with us, you remember that he talks about how God chose us and redeemed us and sealed us through Jesus Christ and in the Holy Spirit. And that through our faith in Jesus Christ and the work that was accomplished through him, that we can know what it is to have hope in Christ and our value in Christ and to have the power of Christ in our lives. Now, there was a lot to cover in chapter 1, a lot of theological points to cover in chapter 1. And so we, when we get to chapter 2, Paul's kind of circling back a little bit here, and he wants to cover two important questions. He wants us to understand, first of all, why did we need to be saved in the first place? But then also, what exactly was it? Like, like, how did God actually accomplish that? It's kind of like when you get a jigsaw puzzle. I'm sure we've all done puzzles before, and you first buy that puzzle, and you buy it based upon a few factors, one of which is what the picture on the box looks like. Is that a picture that you want to invest in and work towards and build? And so you buy that, and then you take it home with an idea of what the end result's going to look like, but 
by no means have you finished yet. You then need to go home and open it and start to actually assemble the pieces to achieve that end goal. And so today, as we walk through chapter 2 of Ephesians, step by step, piece by piece, we're going to see how Paul is assembling this puzzle of salvation. And he begins by talking about how God has lavished his grace through the saving work of Jesus Christ, how he's lavished that grace upon us. But then he continues by talking about how God takes each of those people who have received that grace, who have been transformed by the presence of Christ, he takes each of those people and he places them into an assembly of believers, into a body, that he, a word he used at the very end of chapter 1, the word church that he used. And he starts to build upon that now. And we'll see throughout this, through the individual placing together the pieces and then the collective corporate placing of those pieces, that when God takes the pieces and puts them together, their unity reveals his masterpiece that he has had in plan in, play, a plan in place from the beginning of time. So as we walk through this today, let's begin by looking at the pieces that were brought together to make our salvation possible. And he begins this in, in chapter 2, verse 1 where he opens up this discussion by drawing our attention to a problem that exists for all people who live without Jesus Christ. People who are living in the world now that don't have Jesus Christ, and maybe people here who are in Christ now, but prior to that, when you lived, before you knew Christ, he says this, he says, you were dead in your transgressions and you were dead in your sins. And he continues to explain what that means. When he goes, at that point, you, you lived in the world. You lived in this world that is ruled by Satan. And when it's ruled by Satan, it's, it, it's him at work and those that he refers to as disobedience. And those who are living in the world, ruled by Satan, disobedient to the things of God, they have this tendency. And their tendency is to seek after and to satisfy whatever thoughts pop into their head. Whatever cravings emerge from within their bodies, they tend to chase after and want to fulfill those things. And in this situation that he's described in the first few verses, we can begin to see the nature of the problem. And he points out, first of all, that one of the issues we have, the first problem is our moral condition without Christ. Because there's conflict happening here. There's a, there's a kingdom of the air, he refers to it, and then there's the kingdom of heaven. And there's contrast and conflict between these two because they have different rulers. And each person belongs, has citizenship in one or the other. And there's no such thing as dual citizenship between these two realms, these two kingdoms. And by the nature of the kingdom that you belong to, by the nature of the kingdom that you are a citizen of, you will either follow the cravings of the flesh or you will follow after the desires of the Spirit of God that lives within you. You are governed by one of these two kingdoms. And which one you are a citizen of will determine which of those two kingdoms governs you. If you are following the ways of the world, you will be in conflict with the kingdom of God. It's what he's pointing out here right at the very beginning. And this then reveals the second problem that we have, is that we have a problem of a spiritual condition without Christ. He says, not only are we dead in our sins, but in verse 3 he continues, he goes, therefore, by nature, we are deserving of God's wrath. Now, in the way Paul's describing this, when he talks about being dead in our sins, the way he's describing this, he's not talking about our sins in terms of, of bad things we do that make us a sinner. See, what he's talking about, rather, is he's pointing out that all of us suffer from a terminal condition. All of us have this terminal condition called sin. 
You see, it's not that we do bad things and doing bad things makes us bad. It's that we do bad things because by nature we are bad. When we steal and cheat, that doesn't make us greedy. We steal and cheat because by nature we're greedy. We are not sinners because we sin. Because we are sinners, we sin. You see, our bodies in that state, in that nature that exists apart from God, our bodies, when we exist in that nature, they desire after the things of the world. Those are the things that have become our God. Those are the things that have become the Lord of our lives that that control our actions. So when the body says, hey, tell a lie to get out of trouble, we think it's a good idea. When the body says, you want that but can't afford it, no one's looking, just take it, we might act upon that. When the body says, you're kind of down, you're kind of depressed, go spend a bunch of money even though you don't have it. You'll feel better. Just go do it. That's what is the driving force behind what's happening when we are ruled by the kingdom of the air. And now by nature, people who, don't, who, who live this way not only live driven by these things, but it actually gets worse because they, they live as though there is no God and they take it a step further to the point where they believe that they are God. Now, Paul wrote a letter to Romans, Romans as well, and he said this in Romans 1.18, that the wrath of God is being revealed against all the godliness and wickedness of people. The wrath of God. Now, this is referring to God's holy and just response to those who are living contrary to his will and his nature. Quite often, people who, who read verses like this will say, wait a second, I, I'm not that bad. Like, I, I've, I've done all sorts of good things. If I were to li- make a list of the good things and the bad things, the good things totally outweigh the bad things. So why do I deserve God's wrath? And, and it's actually a fair question that people ask. It's an important one for us to wrestle with. Because what they're actually saying is that they've rationalized the situation, and they're saying, relative to other people, I'm pretty good. I, I'm not going to say I'm the top of the list. But I'm going to say I'm pretty good. I'm probably, you know, above average kind of thing. Like, like if I were to sit back and think, well, who's at the top of the list? Maybe you know, some people might say somebody like, well, maybe like, like Billy Graham, top of the list, top of the list kind of guy. Well, I, I'm no Billy Graham, but I'm miles better than that murderer they arrested on the news last night. He's like way down here. So I'm probably like, like uh, upper middle is where I fit in. So, so why am I worthy of God's wrath? Well, here's the problem with that analogy, is that Billy Graham isn't the measurement. He's not the person on top of the list. The very top of the list, it says Almighty God at the top of the list. And suddenly, when that becomes the bar, when that becomes the level, when that level of goodness and holiness becomes the measurement, regardless of the distribution we had down before, everybody slides to the bottom in comparison to the holiness and goodness of Almighty God who is at the top. Because the reality is this, is that all of us have sinned. All of us, every single one of us has fallen short, way short of God's glory. And when we are measured against his goodness, when we are measured against his holiness, even our good acts don't look so good anymore. And at the same time, we have to admit, we have to acknowledge that every single one of us at one point or another have denied God. Or we have blasphemed him in some way in our lives. And therefore, considering the measurement of his holiness and his goodness, considering the fact that we are sinful people, that we, none of us are without sin, 
God's wrath is not one degree worse than we deserve. Now, that's a heavy way to start a letter. That's a lot of bad news to open up a letter with. So thankfully, Paul presses on. He presses on, and so will we by pressing on to the next verse. And I don't want to press on because I want us to leave that first thought. It is incredibly important for us to understand and to wrestle with the reality of our nature, the reality of our condition without Christ. It is serious now and for all eternity. However, Paul presses on and he opens the next verse, verse 4, with a critical word. He opens it with the word, but. But. A word that signals a change of direction and thought. A word that signals something different is coming. A word that signals that, that, yes, all of this is true. That if you are living without Christ, if you are subject and citizens of the kingdom of the air, this is true of your nature and condition. But there's more. And what is that more? Well, in verse 4, he says this, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. You see, in spite of our sinful nature, in spite of who we are in that condition, motivated by love, God took mercy upon us instead of wrath. What does that mean? You see, mercy means that even though we deserve punishment, God instead extends compassion and kindness that we don't deserve. Yet he extends compassion and kindness to us. And it says in verse 4 and 5 that, that he made us alive in Christ and that he then seated us in the heavenly realms. Now these two points Paul writes in the past tense, which is intentional because he's trying to explain that these are not things that we're just on a treadmill trying to achieve and trying to get to. He's saying, no, no, this is in the past. This was already accomplished through Jesus Christ. This is the stuff that Jesus accomplished when he gave his life upon the cross. When he went to the cross to pay the price for our sins. When he gave his life in place of ours. When God poured out his wrath upon Jesus instead of us. These things became accomplished in the past. So he's writing these in the past tense. So that all those who hear and believe and receive this become identified with Jesus Christ. And that is the good news to the bad news that he opened the letter with. You see, just as God raised Jesus Christ from the dead, we who are in Christ are also no longer dead, but we are spiritually alive with Christ. And as people who are spiritually alive with Christ, we then have the opportunity to also share in his victory. And if we are raised with Christ, ascended with Christ, seated in heaven with Christ, then from an eternal perspective, when God looks at us in Christ, we're already in eternity. We're already in heaven. As he says here, because of his great mercy, he's already seated us in heaven with Christ. And he can declare that because there's no longer any question about our eternal destiny. Well, we may not yet physically or reality be in that place. The end has already been determined. Therefore, rather than being controlled by the flesh, we need to seek to reflect the image of Christ in our lives. That means that our thoughts and our desires need to change. Our allegiances from the kingdom of the world to the kingdom of heaven need to change so that we seek to reflect the image of Christ and start to focus upon things from a heavenly perspective and focus upon the things of God. But also, it gives us the ability to live with confidence. 
with confidence in the here and now. Because if we are in Jesus Christ, we are in him now, and we know where we will spend eternity. Forever. Because we are seated in heaven with Christ. Now, this is a bit of a theological puzzle he's putting together. He's kind of assembling. And so in verses 8 through 10, Paul starts to bring all of these pieces together for us in one of the most well-known words that, that Paul spoke in all of his letters, in all of his writings. And he brings it all together for us by saying this in verse 8 and 9. He says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. And in these two verses, in in, in verse 10 we'll look at in a second, we can see actually four pieces of salvation that he's bringing together. These four pieces, we can refer to them as cause, means, effect, and promise. We'll walk through these four briefly. He brings together cause, means, effect, and promise of our salvation. So what is the cause of our salvation here? What is the cause? Well, the cause is, is grace, is God's grace. Now, how do we understand grace? Well, where mercy removes the punishment, grace goes a step further by filling in that gap with something else, by filling it in with blessing, by filling in with favor that we didn't earn and didn't deserve. So while mercy removes the punishment, grace takes a step further and says, but we are blessed. But we extended, God extended his favor to us in place of that. And it begins by understanding that we did nothing to earn our salvation. It was all God. We did nothing to earn it. What we earned was punishment. But out of mercy that was removed, and in that gap, instead, we received blessing and favor. There's a story from a number of decades ago about, about President Calvin Coolidge. I'll give you an idea of how many decades ago for this. But there's a story about President Coolidge, who one night woke up in his hotel room And as he sits up in his bed, he sees in the shadows a burglar going through his pockets of his pants that he had put over onto the side. And now, instead of deciding to call the Secret Service to rush in and arrest this person, which was the reasonable thing to do, especially for anybody who has their home broken into wants to call the authorities, how much yet so a president with Secret Service on the other side of the door would just call to have them come in, which is what the guy deserved. But instead of doing that, he decided to stop. And and, and he, he said, first of all, he asked him, please don't take the pocket watch that's in there. There's a special engraving on it that's very important to me. Could, could you just leave that? And then he continued to engage this burglar in a conversation. And he found out through the course of the conversation that this he was a young man who was in college, and he was broke. He had no money to pay his bills. He had no money for food. He, he had no money to buy a ticket even to, to get back to where he was coming from. And so as they engaged in this conversation... As an act of mercy, the president didn't call Secret Service in to arrest the person, but went a step further as an act of grace, convinced the man to give him his wallet. And so when Coolidge received his wallet back, he reached in and took out $32 and gave it to the burglar so that he could pay his bills and he could buy a ticket to get back to where he came from. And then he advised the young man to leave the same way which he had come so as not to risk getting arrested and caught even though they had made this arrangement. An incredible example of one of the most powerful men in the world who was wronged. But instead of moving towards the punishment which everyone would agree was appropriate, he extended mercy and he extended grace to this young man. You see, instead of the sin penalty that we deserve, 
God chose to free us from that and instead extends his love to us, his mercy, his forgiveness, and his favor. That's the cause by which we are saved. What is the means? The means is by faith. By faith in that, we are saved. Faith could be understood as reaching out your hand and taking hold of salvation for yourself. You see, faith is not a religious feeling. It's not a religious action or behavior. It's not something you come to church and do when we call it faith. Faith is belief that Jesus accomplished everything he said he accomplished. Faith is belief that we can rest in the truth that God accepted the sacrifice of Jesus as sufficient for our forgiveness. Faith is like a child reaching out its hand, taking the hand of a parent, and resting and finding peace and knowing it's going to be okay. Faith is the means by which we're saved. And what's the effect of that? What's the effect of when we experience grace, when the cause is grace and the means is faith? What is the effect of it? Well, the effect is works. Now, works comes up twice within this section. First here, it comes up by explaining that we're not saved by works. And I can't emphasize that enough. Because there's this human tendency to want to believe that, well, it can't be that simple. I have to do, I have to do something. Like, I have to, I have to go do a, a whole no repentance. I need to go do some community service hours. I need to do something to pay the price for my sin. That, that's the common thinking that a lot of people have. But here's the thing. Just as our bad works, our bad acts don't make us bad, so too our good works don't make us good. Imagine if that was how it worked. If that was how it worked, where if we're good one week and bad the next week, we're in and out of God's favor, in and out of salvation all the time, then our salvation would be as precarious as our weeks are. Where you have a good week, and, and you're, feeling, you're feeling pretty good about yourself, and you, you went and served a, a meal down at the uh, inner city, and you, you spent some time reading your Bible, you got to work and school on time, every time, all week. Nailed it. You read your Bible, you prayed. You know, you even, you even shared, uh, you even shared a, a, a bless you when somebody sneezed in the office once. And you're feeling pretty good about yourself. But then the next week, you're a little stressed, Maybe yelled at the kids a little bit, kicked the dog, right? Skipped church. Anything, oh, well, I've fallen out of favor now. So it's not how it works. Because it's not based upon what we have accomplished and what we have done. If we earned our way into it, we would be able to earn our way out of it. But it is by grace of God giving what we don't deserve that this is extended to us. And so works is not the means by which we are saved. Now, the second way that works is used in this passage is found in verse 10, where it says that we are not saved by works, but works are the proof, and they are the validation of our salvation that we've received. It says this, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. You see, when we come to a point of experiencing and of receiving God's grace and love for us, I do not believe it is possible to receive that and to experience it and not be touched by it. Not be touched by the reality of God's love and his mercy and his grace without allowing it to change you in some fashion. To the point where you go out and you have different allegiances. Your citizenship has changed. Your passions have changed. The governing forces of your life have changed and you're no longer seeking to fulfill the flesh that is within us, but instead the spirit of God that is within us. Is that if we have received the love of Christ, 
it will propel us towards good works. So we will achieve these things not as a means of gaining salvation, but that we will do them as the effect of salvation in our lives. Which then leads us to the final one, which is the promise. The promise of our salvation. It referred to here as, as we are handiwork. We, we are God's masterpieces. The word that's being used there is poema. Poema, which means, which means a poem. See, your life is like a beautiful poem that God has started writing. And with every stroke of that pen as he writes the poem of your life, every event exists to glorify him. And so all the events in your life, all of the, the works that you have done, good or bad, none of it is beyond God's awareness and beyond his knowledge. And as we move towards God's work in our lives, we are moving towards advancing his plan that he has determined for us to, to experience. See, there's nothing in your life that happens apart from God's knowledge. I love how one commentary, I read this a few weeks ago, he said, did you ever realize that nothing has ever dawned on God? You may find yourself in a moment, you're like, whoa, I didn't see that coming. God has never had that feeling. He's never had that experience before. He's never been surprised or taken off guard by something. Everything that happens in our lives, whether it be good things or painful things, none of it is beyond his knowledge. Nothing has ever dawned upon him. And because of his incredible goodness and power and presence in our lives, that means that there's nothing that takes him off guard, so there's nothing that he can't enter into to comfort us in. That he can't enter into to give us his good provision for. That he can't join us in celebrating in those high times of our lives. The Bible promises this. When we think about our lives as a poem that's being written, a beautiful poem that's being written about your life, the Bible also tells us this, is that what God starts, he finishes. And that means that God is not done with you yet. Regardless of where you may find yourself right now, if you find yourself at a high point, there is more even yet to come. And there are probably some valleys to go through yet, but you can go through those with Christ. If you find yourself currently in one of those low points, he is not finished yet. And he will come alongside and he can walk with you through those darkest valleys and bring you up out of those back to a point of peace. Because he's not finished yet. Our job is to not steal the pen out of his hand. Our job is to yield our lives to him and to allow his grace to change our hearts, to rest in our confidence that our changed hearts, our changed citizenship means that we have a changed destiny and then allow his love and his mercy to flow through us which results in good works to his glory. It's the promise of our salvation that what God has started, he will finish in your life. Amen? So these are the pieces that Paul's bringing together about our individual salvation. And it's where we need to, <clears throat> where we all need to begin. But it's not the end of the story. It's just sort of the first part of the story, if you will. Because in God's plan, after he has secured individual salvation for people, he then takes all those who are in Christ, and he then starts to take steps to assemble them together into what Paul first mentioned at the end of chapter 1, which is the body of Christ also understood as, as, as the church. So, let's think about how this is assembled. Again, using the example of puzzles. So when you get your puzzle home, and you open the box, and you dump the pieces, what's the first thing that you do? You start sorting the pieces, right? You gotta get your edge pieces over here, you gotta get your interior pieces over here. You, you kinda make two piles, right? Does anybody else do that, or I, I do puzzles wrong? Yeah, okay. That's how we do it, right? 
So in this brief history lesson that Paul is going to give us in verses 11 and 12, it's kind of what God had, it's kind of what had happened, where, where people essentially were put into two piles. You see, there, there were the Jews and there were the Gentiles. Now, Paul is primarily writing to the Gentiles. He's writing to a church in Ephesus, which is sort of modern-day Turkey, so predominantly a Gentile area. There were some Jews who would have been there as well because it was such a, a, a hub of transportation and, and commerce, but predominantly a Gentile region. And so he's writing to Gentile people, and he says, Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth were excluded. What were they excluded from? They were excluded from citizenship in Israel. They were excluded from, they were foreigners to the covenants of the promise. They were excluded from hope because they were excluded from God. If there is no God, there is no hope. They were excluded from all of these things. Now, the other group of people that's being identified here is, is the Jewish people, the, the nation of Israel, who historically were God's chosen people we, we read about throughout the Old Testament. They are the ones with which whom he had established his covenant. They are the ones where he said, I will be your God and you will be my people. And then in the context of that relationship, he blessed them and he walked with them and journeyed with them. And he brought them to be a great nation. They're the ones who receive the covenant promises of a future. That, that, that a king would come from them, that a great kingdom would come from them. That, that, that one day the Messiah would even come from, from that people. And the sign and the distinguishing mark of those who were in that covenant, who were part of that promise, was circumcision which we read about in the Old Testament as well. And so in the New Testament, whenever you read about those who are circumcised and uncircumcised, it's kind of talking about, what do you fall into one of these two groups, essentially, is where it is. And now the Gentiles was basically all other people, all other nations of the world who are not part of that. And for most of history, there are these two distinct groups that existed. There were those who were part of God's family, who were part of the covenant, and then there were all those who were excluded from it. And then in verse 13, Paul says this. He says that God was doing something new through Jesus Christ. He was doing something new that was a game changer for everyone. Where he said, now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You see, the Jewish sacrificial system that existed up until this point was this, this constant process of offering f sacrifices for the forgiveness of sins, where you would go to the priest with your sacrifice and you, you would make this, this atonement for sin, and, and, and it was a means of, of attaining a sense of righteousness. The problem was, it was this constant cycle of sacrifice and sin, and sacrifice and sin, sacrifice and sin, year after year, generation after generation, century after century, it was going through time and time again. But that all stopped. Because when Jesus Christ... The sinless Son of God came and made himself the final sacrifice, one sacrifice for all sin, for all people. There was no longer any need for that sacrificial system to exist. And so therefore, these two previously separated groups now had something in common. What they had in common is that both Jews and child Gentiles, people from all nations, could find salvation in faith in Jesus Christ. And they shared this in common. Now, as incredible as this news is for us in this perspective, this was not a happy homecoming for them back in this time. As you imagine, this changed everything because these two groups for generations, for, for centuries, had been isolated in every way possible. They had been isolated socially, politically, 
physically separated. They had been religiously isolated from each other and to the point where there was incredible hostility between the two groups. One of the, one of the best examples of this hostility is if at that time, if you were to walk towards the Temple Mount, there was the court of the Gentiles, and then there was the court of uh, the nation of Israel, and then heading towards closer into the temple. And there was a, a stone wall, a stone dividing wall between them. And every, once, every so many feet down the wall, there was a plaque written in Latin and written in Greek, the language of the Gentiles, that basically said, foreigners must not enter. Whoever is caught will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. In that message, they're saying, if you cross this line and you are not part of us, then God will strike you down for crossing the line. And if he doesn't, I just might for crossing this line. And so, considering the hostility and the division that's existing, when Paul says, guys, he's bringing us together as one, it, it was a tough thing for them to understand. It would never happen before. And so, considering this situation, it's not surprising that the way that Paul presents this to them beginning in verse 14 is he says when he talks about what God's up to he says this he goes for he himself is our peace peace people I want to express peace he is our peace speaking of Jesus Christ who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier the dividing wall of hostility between these two people why did he do it his purpose to do it if we were to keep reading his purpose is to do it is to create in himself one new humanity out of the two one body to be reconciling both of them towards God through the cross. The two now become one. Jesus was now the means of their identity. Jesus was now the means of where they would find hope and forgiveness and access to the promises of God. And that was all made possible through Christ's death upon the cross, which was a complete game changer for everyone. It changed the system that existed for the nation of Israel for, for all of these years, and they had to get their head around that. It invited and gave access to the Gentiles who had previously been excluded, and they had to get their head around that and all come together. Because the cross is a game changer in their lives, and it's a game changer in each of our lives. Because Paul would write this to the church in Galatia where he says, There is neither Jew nor Gentile. There isn't slave and there isn't free. There isn't male and female, for all are one. Regardless of what had historically divided in the past, all are one in Christ Jesus. All those who have been saved by grace through faith, as we discussed earlier, are in Christ Jesus. And when he brings them together, what he refers to here is as, as one humanity, as one body, he's speaking of God's church. God's assembled people. Not a physical building, not an address on a map. He's speaking here of God's people assembled under the banner of Jesus Christ to pursue the purposes of God. We'll get more into this next week. But for today, if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ for forgiveness, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ and seek to have him revealed in all areas of your life, then we can praise God. Because you are no longer dead in your sin, you are alive in Christ. You have been called and empowered by God to go forth and do good works. You have been brought into the body of Christ as a member of God's household. And there is no longer such a thing as a foreigner, such a thing as, as a stranger to God's hope. There's nobody who is, who is outside of God's love if they are in Christ. And as members of that family, built on the foundation of the word of God with Jesus Christ himself as the chief cornerstone, who is the first and perfect 
foundation that was placed, upon whom all others exist, upon all upon whom all others depend, upon whom all others are built. Jesus Christ, the cornerstone placed first, then we are in that family of God. Amen? Amen. We'll get more into that next week. But in this playbook for the church that Paul's writing, he's explaining the how and the why of the calling, the equipping, and the assembling of God's team. Next week we're going to continue talking about this. But before we, before we wrap up today, I just want to leave you a few thoughts to consider. Because there's sort of a lot of pieces of theology that come together. And we can leave feeling a little smarter, but might be not leaving thinking any different. So a few thoughts I want to leave you with as we wrap this up today. The first one is this. That being in the church is not the same as being in Christ. Now everyone is welcome in the church. Everybody is welcome to walk through these doors and to join us. Whether you are here and you're at that stage of curiosity about religion, if you are maybe here because of a sense of loneliness or a sense of hurting, if you're at a point of questioning the things of God, if you're just not quite sure about all of this, you are still welcome here because everyone is welcome to come and join us in this place and be in community with us here. That's not what I'm talking about when I point out this phrase. I'm not talking about a building in a community, though, that, yes, we can be in church, without believing in Jesus Christ, but that's actually the point. See, everyone is welcome to come in here, whether you believe or not, or journeying, or cross that line or not, you're welcome here. But being here is not the same as being in Christ, because this is the challenge. There is a difference between being in relationship with Christian people and being in relationship with Christ. Those are two different things. It's one thing to come into a building and, and to sing some songs and, and, and to give and to, and to serve amongst the people and to attend services. Those are fantastic things to do, and everyone is welcome to come and join us in those things. But that would fall into the category of good works. You see, faith in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, putting our faith in what he has accomplished, that is what makes us people who are in Christ. And when we are in Christ, we then get brought into God's universal church. Not a, not a building, not an address on a map. And so for a new person, they're always welcome to come in and to journey. But there is a point where that nature hopefully will change, when, when their future will change, when the passions that drive them and motivate them will change. When a go from doing good works that they think might be leading them towards salvation become good works because of their salvation. And if you've never taken that step, if you, if you are with us and among us, we are thrilled to have you here. We encourage you to come see myself or the prayer partners following the service to say, hey, how do I take that step? How do I take that step to not just be, be in the church, but be in Christ? And then continue in the church as a follower of Christ. So being in the church is not the same as being in Christ. Second point is this. You can pick your friends, but you're stuck with your relatives. Okay? It's the truth. Right? So when you are... When you are placed by faith in Christ, you become part of God's family. And there are a whole bunch of family members in there that you didn't know existed. There are people in this building, there are people in other buildings, there are people all around the world who are part of God's church, who are part of God's family you don't know anything about. And you didn't pick them because they're your relatives. You can pick your friends, you can pick who you hang out and go for lunch with, but you can't pick your family members, your relatives. And I, I love this fact because... Think back to the church of, uh, uh, what, that Paul is writing to where, where there are these two groups who now became one. 
I guarantee you when the service was over, they still kind of stuck to their piles for the most part because that's not a quick change that takes place. But when they come together as a family of God, there's a unity that needs to exist there. And I love that picture of that unity. I love the picture of that diversity because it means, in my mind, it means that regardless of ethnicity and, and demographics and backgrounds, regardless of the struggles you've had in the past, regardless of the sins, whether they are hidden or visible, whatever it is that you are wrestling with, even if you are here and have slightly different beliefs, all of these things are potential points of division. All of these things are potential points that can cause tension and conflict and splits within the church. Just like I'm sure it was a constant challenge in the first church between the Jews and the Gentiles being brought together. But some things that we need to know, some things that we need to know we are unwavering on. There are some non-negotiables. And those tend to fall into the area of doctrines that are written in our statement of faith. But outside of those, there are not as many non-negotiables as a lot of people think there are. And when it comes to, to other areas whether it be things of origin or culture or background or history, instead of these things being points of division, I, I long for us as a church, and I think we do this, but I want us to continue to celebrate these things as opposed to use them for other purposes. Because I think when we see diversity in the church, it gives us a glimpse of heaven. We're in Revelation 7, verse 9, it says, Every nation and tribe and people and language stand before the throne of God wearing white robes and praising him. When there's great, incredible diversity in the church, I think it's a glimpse of what we're going to have in heaven. And it's a beautiful picture. And I long for us to grow in that. So you can pick your friends. You can pick who you want to go for lunch with. But you can't pick your family, your relatives, who you're going to spend eternity with. And so let's start celebrating those now. And the third point and final point, following Christ is a team sport. All people were born with a need for community. Every single person, regardless of background or faith or origin or story, everybody was born with a need to be known and to know others. To be loved and to love others. That's true of all of us. But I think it's even more true of us in, in a world that is increasingly hostile towards the Christian worldview. We need one another. We need to be in a place of authentic community where we can share our lives, when we can just hang out together on a Sunday afternoon, where we, can, where we can share spiritual challenges or spiritual truths that we're encountering, where we find ourselves in a moment of needing some support or help, who are you going to call at 3 o'clock in the morning? We need those people in our lives. Man, sometimes we just need people to high-five when something goes wrong, when something goes good. You, you ever get your hand up, you just kind of left hanging? Like, where's my buddy at, right? Like, like we need people in our lives, even just a high-five on occasion. And it says this in verse 21 at the end of the letter, at the end of chapter 2 of this letter to the Ephesians. It says, in Christ the whole building is being joined together and raises to become a holy temple to the Lord. He's speaking here about all of us who are in Christ being brought together to be built into something that were in each other's lives in a meaningful, intentional way. But that's not the only team we're talking about here. Because finally in verse 22 it also says, you are being built to be a dwelling in which God lives by his Holy Spirit. And never forget that the Holy Spirit's part of the team as well. And God lives in us as well, in spirit. And he is among us individually, and he's among us corporately. And he can bring us comfort in those times of difficulty. He can bring us counsel in those times of questioning. And he can convict us when we start to get off trail a little bit. So, being in the church is not the same as being in Christ. You can pick your friends, but hey, 
you're stuck with your relatives for good or bad. And following Christ is a team sport. Keep those things in mind as we go forth today. I'm going to quickly pray as the worship team comes up and close our service here today. Heavenly Father, a lot of ground covered today, but all of it points back to you. All of it points back to the truth that out of your great love for us, you sent Jesus Christ to give himself as a sacrifice to pay the price for our sins. God, we didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. In so many ways, we, we still haven't even, even scratched the surface of what it could even potentially mean to earn it and compared to your goodness and your holiness. And we, we just thank you, Lord, that you loved us enough that, that you would take that step to bring us into your family. God, I pray that each of us would wrestle with that means. What does that look like in my life? Where, where, where could I address something where I could exemplify what it means to be ruled by Christ and not by the world? Where is there an area in which perhaps there's, there's a division in my heart between me and somebody else? God, is it really essential if it's going to potentially cause division in the church? Or can we celebrate unity? Can we celebrate, God, that you love everybody, that you died for everyone, and those who have reached out their hand and taken yours, that you brought them into the family, and our role is to love them, to be united with them in the authentic community. Thank you, Lord, for bringing this into your family. I pray this in Jesus' name.